This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. It's like the Thanos snap of holiday shopping days. It's the Black Friday edition of episode 241 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. No, we're not selling anything. We don't need Black Friday deals for you, but here's the deal. We are going to be talking about Livewire finally getting an ongoing series from Valiant Comics. That's right. Vita Ayala joins us this week to talk about all things Livewire and so much more. Can't wait to chat with Vita a little bit later on the show. And, you know, it's going to be a light nerd news week. We still got plenty going on for you. Going to talk comics. What we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is John Barber, writer of Optimus Prime. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hopefully you've stopped your Black Friday shopping long enough to fire up your laptop or your tablet to read some comics. Maybe you're pulling out the long box instead. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And I was really looking forward to this one, actually, when I saw it in the solicitations. Middle West number 1 from Image Comics, written by Scotty Young. Jorge Corana on the art. Jean-Francois Beaulieu on the colors. And then Nate Picos from Blambot on the letters. Now, I will say this. This is something that I, at least I think, is very different than anything Scotty Young has written so far. And, and it's really, really good stuff. I mean, it follows a young boy named Abel, who has a very difficult life at home, to say the least. Again, I do these reviews spoiler-free, so I'm really going to try not to reveal anything about this first issue for you guys. So, he lives with his father, who's extremely tough. I mean really tough. And after a couple of mistakes that Abel makes, there he makes a decision that is, I mean, when you read the book, you'll see that the, what he does is pretty stupid, okay? And and there's even like a, well, you know, kids being kids type of reference, but I mean, it's still pretty stupid. But there only seems to be one person that thinks that this mistake is completely unforgivable. And, you know, when you read the book and you judge what he does, I mean, that's that's a judgment call for each individual person, right? You know, how would you feel if your child did this or, or, or a kid did this, no matter what scenario you're in? And I know I'm really dancing around in here because I don't want you to, I don't want to tell you what it was that he did exactly. But, you know, you, you kind of judge that for yourself when you read it. And I think that's the beauty of, of, this, of this story here is because you're going to judge the events, at least of the first part of this issue, on your and everybody's going to have a different opinion, I think. Or at least, well, there's not many opinions that can be had with this specific instance, but I think it certainly sparks a discussion on what would you do, sort of thing. So after a really tense confrontation, things take quite a crazy turn, and it's almost a callback to something you see 
in the first couple of pages of the issue, which make perfect sense once the issue goes on, by the way. And it sets the story on quite a different path at that point. And that's kind of where it's left. Now, I will say that this was a very uncomfortable read at times for a lot of different reasons. And and what Abel had to go through is really part of that. But I think that that was kind of part of the point of the story. It was supposed to make you feel either uncomfortable or angry or sympathetic. There was an emotion there that you were going to have, but it really drives home wanting to find something better for Abel, I think. It definitely made you either you either related to him, you felt sorry for him, or you wanted to see how he would deal with what was going on with him. That will make perfect sense when you read this book, by the way. You know, while the book is called Middle West and does kind of brush on the whole flyover state lifestyle, the story is extremely character-driven and powerful. Abel does have a circle of friends. You get to see his dad. There's a couple of other things sprinkled in there as well. But it's a very, very character-driven and powerful story. And the imagery around it, I mean, you you could take it as a metaphor if you like, because I certainly did. And I'm not going to, again, spoil that for you. I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Pun absolutely intended, by the way. I'm going to let you draw your own conclusions there. Because the art throughout the book is really, really amazing, guys. And there's a couple of full-page spreads that I almost couldn't take my eyes off of. You know, it usually doesn't take you long to read an issue of any comic, but every now and then you've got art that will just make you stop and scan it, right? And usually it's just one page. When you've got this full-page, two-page spread as you open up the book, or even if you're reading it digitally, you're going to... You know when you read it digitally, you can kind of zoom in, especially if you're on a tablet. You, you zoom in, you try and get every little detail. That's how good these spreads were and that's how good the art was in this book I felt like now good art makes you feel like you're also experiencing things yourself and you know exactly how that how that felt or how you're feeling I felt like I was in a couple of these scenes and you know you could you could just feel it flowing through you and and not just because of the art but the storyline as well especially during the tense confrontation that I mentioned and it's tense and you you almost feel like you you don't know these two characters that are involved, but at the same time, you're, your heart starts pumping, and you're like, whoa, where is this going? How much is this going to escalate? It's, it was one of those moments, and it, I did not expect this from a Scotty Young book. These Usually, Scotty Young books are a lot of fun. Yeah, there are some serious moments at times, but you know, nothing to this level. I don't think anyway, unless I missed a Scotty Young story somewhere here and there, I am super, super impressed with him stepping out of his comfort zone and doing something this just hardcore, man. I mean, this is a pull for me that I got to have the next issue of Middle West in my hands right now because I can't wait, especially the way this book ends, can't wait to see where the next issue goes. This is something that when I was at San Diego Comic-Con, I saw this when I was walking out of one of the press rooms, you know, I was scrolling through the news that I missed, and I was so excited to see the GoBots were coming back to comics. GoBots number one, finally out this week from IDW Publishing. Not really a long list of names to read here. It's Tom Scioli does the writing, the art, and the lettering. Okay. Now, much like the initial announcement itself said, GoBots are basically here to serve humans. They can't harm humans or anything like that. It's almost not necessarily servants, but it's sometimes companions. And, you know, you just do certain tasks for the humans if they ask you to, right? And it's not necessarily a give-and-take relationship. It's more like a take-and-take. But, you know, they're, they're here to be humble servants, I guess is the best way that you could put it. Now, we get to see a few different GoBots, actually. And they seem to be pretty obedient, you know, pretty sympathetic, pretty you know, willing to bend to whatever the humans want them to do. And nothing's really asked of them from certain humans that, you know, it's not not a big deal like, you know, hey, go, you know, ride a couple of fares for me and, and make a few bucks sort of thing. It's almost like you're your own Uber sort of thing. Now, that's kind of when the story takes quite a predictable and unfortunate turn, actually, because... You kind of see where things are getting set up, and you see where it's going to go. I mean, you don't maybe know exactly 
where it's going to go, but uh, you, you, you kind of wish that you don't, they don't take this tenor with the story, and I kind of use the term story loosely. This book's all over the place, and that's really unfortunate. It doesn't take much time to establish its current, current path before you pulling, pulling you off to another setting that feels like a completely other different story, and then it pulls you another way. I mean, I guess you could say everything kind of comes full circle and everything matters. Every story matters to the grand point of what they're trying to do here, but it just felt like it was very disjointed. When things start to come together, it's really, really clunky at best. And, and again, very, very predictable in a way that makes you really wish that it would have been a little bit more imaginative. I mean, even in the digital version, though, the one thing I did like was the pages looked like newsprint. And I thought that was pretty cool, especially, you know, the, the art had a throwback look to it anyway. So I, I liked that it, it felt like I was getting a newsprint book. And the art seemed pretty basic for the most part. But really, for the time period that the GoBots were in, it was really appropriate. So I think that that was my favorite part of the book as it gave me that nostalgic feel. As a GoBots fan, though, I was really hoping that this book would bring something new and fresh, but it just didn't. I mean, in a time where, I mean, the GoBots were always seen as the bastard children of the Transformers anyway, right? And But I was always a huge GoBots fan growing up. I had Transformers and GoBots. And yeah, I let them duke it out. You know, you're sitting there playing with your action figures, playing with your toys. Yeah, I had GoBots and Transformers Wars all the time. But if you're stacking Transformers comics up to the GoBot comic that just comes out, it's not even close. It's like a, a vicious beating of epic proportions. This doesn't even come close to touching any Transformers book that IDW is putting out right now. And that's a shame because you've got both of these entities together and it seems like the effort to tell an inventive and different story really, really wasn't there, unfortunately. So I'm going to... Uh, I don't want to give it a drop, though, because I like GoBots. So I'm not sure what to do here. Okay. I Normally, I give it three issues on a pickup. I'll give it one more issue. Give me one more issue to sell me on this and make me want to keep reading this. Because otherwise, I'm going to have to drop I'm gonna have to drop GoBots, and I don't want to. But I'm thinking that... This isn't the only time we'll see the GoBots. I can't imagine we won't see a GoBots versus Transformers book at some point. But I, I'm not holding my breath on this one, guys, because this first issue, really not as good as I would have hoped. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, going to do a spoiler-filled review of maybe not the movie that you're expecting. Find out what it is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is David Harewood from Supergirl. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So since this is now officially the season to be merry, I thought we'd do something a little bit different for this week in Geektainment. While you know, you maybe you expect me to review Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, you know, I decided, you know what, let's do something a little different and talk about the Robin Hood 2018 movie. So here's my spoiler-filled review of this movie. And I know that this has been critically panned, as they like to say, but at the very beginning of the movie, and spoilers abound from here on out, by the way. So just keep that in mind as I go through this review. Look, at the very beginning of this movie, it basically says, like, almost word for word, forget about everything you know. Forget about the bedtime story you've been told. Forget about everything you know about this story. Here's our story. It's basically the movie's way of telling you in the first two minutes that this is going to be different. And that's exactly what they went for. And right there, you know, in that first two minutes, you're either going to appreciate it for being different, not like what they did differently, or just not like it because it's not what you know. So here's where I'm at. First of all, you've got Taron Edgerton. Egerton, excuse me. I, I've, that's the first time I think I've had to say his name ever. So... He's playing Robin of Loxley, and what this basically centers around is, you know, you see Robin and Marion meet for the first time, and she's trying to steal one of his horses. It was actually a cute moment. And then you see, you know, their crazy in love moment, and then he gets drafted to military service in the Crusades war against the Arabians. So, so he goes over there, and you actually get to see almost like a, a battle scene. It almost looked like a war movie 
battle scene at one point, and you see they they end up taking fire, and it's a bad de- a bad deal. And I thought it was a very interesting way for them to introduce John. I mean, they don't really call him Little John in the movie. The J- Jamie Foxx's character of John, they don't really call him Little John. That's who he is, but. That's not really what they call him, so I'm not going to call him that in this review. Anyway, so the way you see John and and Robin meet is basically John's on the Arabian side, and th- th- there's a confrontation, and a pretty tense one, and it looks like John's going to kill Robin right there until he- he's saved by Guy Gisborne, which is kind of ironic, given the way that they don't really get along. And then you see them bond when they go to kill John's son, when they're trying to get information once they win the battle, and Robin stops his own men from killing his son. Now, it doesn't really work out because the son dies anyway, but John remembers that later on. He's like, you're the only one that tried to do the right thing and save my son, and that's why I chose you for this. And the this that we're talking about is, is of course, you know, the robbing the rich, not to, not to give to the poor. Not That's not the objective. The objective is to stop the war. So cut off the money and stop the war. So the focus is less on robbing the rich and giving to the poor and more on let's stop the shop, stop the sheriff from Nottingham and keep him from actually being able to win this war because he won't have any money to fund it if he doesn't. And, and sh- the sheriff is just pillaging the people, taking all their money, driving them out of Nottingham and they're in the mines now. It's a bad deal. And while Robin's gone, and by the way, he did not, you know, it was basically a treasonous act in their minds that he committed. So they don't really say if it had anything to do with it, but, you know, his property was seized for the war effort and all this other stuff. So, you know, he comes home and basically did nothing. And it's been, I think it was four years. And Marion's moved on. And, yeah, Marion's with Will Scarlet now, who is Jamie Dornan. I don't know if he has a playroom or anything like that. Maybe we shouldn't get into that. If you don't know that reference, look it up. You'll be pretty shocked. Um, But... So she's moved on. So he feels like he's got nothing to live for at this point. So he goes on this. He reluctantly agrees to to help John take down the sheriff of Nottingham because he feels like Nottingham is the reason that all of this is happening in the first place. Now, again, I'm not going to go through every little plot point of the movie, but I do think that, and that's kind of where I'll stop my little breakdown of everything that's going on. I do think that one thing that they did that was interesting was they gave... They kind of gave the sheriff of Nottingham purpose, and Ben Mendelsohn, I thought, did a great job. He was just born to play this douchebag villain guy in almost every movie, right? We saw it in Rogue One. We certainly saw it here in the sheriff of Nottingham. I thought he did a great job as the sheriff, maybe one of the best that we've seen so far, because he just, I mean, he plays that role so well. And that scene where he's talking to Robin about you know, what happened when he was a ward of the church and how they used to beat them when they were kids. It was deep, man. And you see where his just, his anger comes in and you see why he's just not a good person at all. And then yet, at the same time, the hypocrisy of it all is, is that he's fighting a war for the church, right? I mean, that's that's the weird thing about this whole deal. And then you've got basically three villains in this movie. You've got the sheriff, you've got Guy Gisborne, and you've got the church itself. The Roman Catholic Church is is basically the main villain in this movie. And when you see the cardinal, that becomes in full effect for sure. So I thought it was an interesting progression of villains. You kind of got, you have the sheriff, and then you have Guy, and then you got the, the Roman Catholic Church. So it was almost like a three-step process. And while this movie does kind of set up a sequel, it doesn't spend the whole movie focusing on setting up a sequel, which I thought was really, really interesting. And I also thought it was interesting how, you know, Robin had to be, you know, first he had to, you know, get the favor of the sheriff. And then, of course, he turns on him. or Well, he's been turning on him the whole time. And the sheriff finds out that he's turned on him. And just the reaction to that, I thought was really neat and how they kind of step through, you know, Robin reveals himself as, as the hood, as they call him in the movie. So when he reveals himself and he's, you know, he's been winning over the people this whole time. And then the deal with him and Will Scarlet, I thought the Will Scarlet character was actually interesting because he had political motivations, right? He wanted to gain the, he really wanted to gain the favor of the sheriff and he wanted to be 
like the common voice of the people, but he wanted political rank. And one thing that this movie actually kind of does in the background, if you really want to see it, is it shows how power can absolutely corrupt men, right? You see how the power just corrupts somebody like Will Scarlet because he feels like he's got a little taste of the good life, right? He thinks he's got he's got the attention of the people. He's the man of the people. He's their voice, right? He's their representative. And he sees that slipping away with the hood and then slowly seeing Marion slip away as well because he was confident in his relationship with her. When Robin came back, you saw when the two of them met and, you know, he kind of plays the, oh, well, she's mine now card with him without actually saying it, which was, again, a dick move. But, I mean, what do you want the guy to do, right, when the, when the love of someone's life comes back and she's yours now, right? So I, I actually thought, and the way that character ends up, again, major spoilers in this review, where he ends up as the new sheriff of Nottingham in the end because he sees Marion and Robin kind of get back together right in front of him. And he's like, you know, he, he basically decides that he doesn't want to be a part of that anymore. He says, you can have her. And then he goes with the church and decides to be the new sheriff of Nottingham. Again, that power corrupting Will Scarlet. So now going forward in a sequel, should there be one, there's your villain right there, or at least your new sheriff to go along with the church. So I actually thought Jamie Dornan did a pretty darn good job as Will Scarlet and playing like the, he's almost like the sniveling villain of the whole thing, right? In the end, right? He's the sniveling weenie who wants to have power, but doesn't really either deserve it or have the ability to get it. So he finds his way, he kind of weasels his way into a position of power. So, you know, you kind of loved to hate him throughout the entire movie. There were a couple of redeeming moments for him, right? Where you thought he was going to do the right thing. And then in the end, yeah, he really doesn't. So I just thought that the, that was a really interesting way to go. I mean, I'm not really a Jamie Foxx fan. I thought he did what he did with John was fine. Wasn't great, but I thought it was fine. I thought the fact that uh, Eve Hewson playing Marion, she was definitely not the, the damsel in distress. She very much was, you know, she started as a thief and she gave she gave a lot of interesting depth to the Marion character, where she was she was an advocate. She was a thief. Then she's right along Robin's side towards there at the end. And, you know, she wants to do her part to fight the battle, right? She's in there. She's not just... And I know there's, there's been plenty of portrayals of strong Marion before. I'm not saying that this is the first one. But the way that she kind of wore a, a lot of different hats... And this movie I thought was really, really interesting character-wise. And the reason I think I liked this movie, I didn't love it. I know that there were plenty of problems with it as well. There, there were a lot of unrealistic moments, you know, action-wise. But again, it's a movie. You got it. You can't take everything so literal. I mean, think about the old Jean-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal movies, right? There, there was a lot of unrealistic action in those movies and a lot and a couple of goofy moments and you know there was some goofy dialogue at times and you know that's kind of where this movie falls in the category of is that yeah there's some unrealistic action sequences there's a lot of explosions which was very interesting I had to check to make sure Michael Bay didn't have credits in this movie because you would have thought he would with all the explosions he should go see it though he'd probably really love this and you know, there was some really bad dialogue at times, but I was like, you know what? Can't we just have fun ever? And I'm gonna, I'm, and that's where I'm going to hang my hat on this review. Right in the beginning, it tells you that it's going to be different and that it's not going to be the story that you know. But you know what? Damn it. It was fun. And sometimes you just have to shut your brain off, not have to think about all these little plot points and which movie this connects with and how everything's connected universes and all this other stuff and you know what's canon what isn't you know what just shut your brain off sometimes and just have fun with a movie I mean like like Tim mentions Friar Tuck he was fun was he the greatest Friar Tuck ever absolutely not but it was a fun character and he was fun to follow and Taron Egerton, Egerton, I'm going to get that right at some point, I, I promise. He was just fun as Robin of Loxley. He really was. He had that charm that he has from Kingsman Secret Service that's shown through. He's a good action star. I mean, there, there was just a lot 
to have fun with in this movie it was by no means a cinematic masterpiece. But it was fun. It's one of those movies where if I happened to see it on, I wouldn't change the channel. I'd watch it again. Maybe I'll like it better the second time. Maybe I'll see it the second time and go, wow, I liked this. That was awful. But I would like to see it again just to see what my reaction would be to it because I think it's just a fun movie. And that's exactly what I'm going to say. That's that's where I'm going to leave it. It was just fun. And I think it's okay to just say, screw it. Let's have fun every now and then. So, I mean, as far as a rating, ah, this is interesting because they definitely, it definitely had its problems. It was not perfect plot-wise. The plot was kind of all over the place. The dialogue wasn't that great. The action was good. I liked the individual characters themselves. So, let's see. I think I will have to give this six and a half wooden dummies that you shoot arrows into out of 10. Maybe that seems low because it seems like seemed like I really liked the movie. It just it had a lot of problems that I can't absolutely can't ignore. But if I'm looking for something to just have fun with, I do recommend you go seeing it though. Even though my rating's a little bit on the lower side, I would just, I would say go see it and see if you have as much fun with it as I did because and six and a half, I don't think it's that terrible, quite frankly. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Robin Hood 2018. Up next, yeah, it might be Thanksgiving week. There's still a few nerd news items to talk about. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Addy Shankar, and I'm on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Trying to find out if there's trouble inside the TARDIS. It's time for nerd news. And yeah, there's a big rumor right now that there could be a shakeup coming inside the world of Doctor Who. This according to Starburst, which is a British sci-fi magazine. Yes, this is just a rumor, but it seems like a pretty big one, so I decided to talk about it. And the rumor is, is that showrunner Chris Chibnall might leave the show after this season. And the reports are that he's really not happy and how the show is being run. And if you're the show runner, that's kind of important, I would think. And he's also kind of episode, uh, upset about the episode count. And it just doesn't seem like behind the scenes things are going very well. And apparently, the report continues to say that if he leaves, that Jodie Whittaker is going to leave with him. Now, they worked on Broadchurch together. Clearly, there's a connection there. The rumors are, again, the BBC is working on a compromise. But here's the other factor that, that plays into this is that Jodie Whittaker has a young child. And, you know, she just might want to spend more time with her child. Instead, Apparently, the, the workload on Doctor Who's been, been quite a lot. And, you know, when you've got a new, new kid, you know, first child, you want to be able to spend time with that child. And you can't fault her. For that at all, she's still going to work, but at the same time, if that workload is affecting her family life, I, I would never, absolutely never, tell someone they shouldn't spend more time with their children and more time with their family. Because at the end of the day, to me, that is more important than anything. But let's take it to the larger picture here, and outside of the whole rumor itself, if all of this is true, and let's just just assume for this discussion that it is, if all of this is true. What does this say about Doctor Who? You've got all this hoopla around the first female Doctor, and you finally broke that barrier down, and it looks like they, and things were new and fresh and different on the show. And I guess, you know, it kind of still is. It's not like that's changed just because we've gotten a few episodes under our belts. But here's the problem, is that if you, if you got all of this attention only to see it go away 
after one series or season, however you want to put it. That that's a problem. And you are also kind of fresh off of losing a showrunner recently for Doctor Who and a star for that matter with Peter Capaldi. And I know that the Doctor, there's a regeneration thing, so it's not like you're going to have somebody play the Doctor for like five seasons. I get that. It's not like Jodie Whittaker would be playing the Doctor forever. I totally understand that. But at the same time, this literally just happened, okay? And we haven't even gotten a chance to, you know, really see a whole lot of this yet. And now you there's a, looks like there's a chance that it might get ripped out from under us. And even if Jodie Whittaker stays and you've got a brand new showrunner, then, I mean, you've got a whole other ball of wax there to deal with because now you're almost starting, you're kind of starting from scratch story-wise because that's what happens when you bring in a new showrunner. I knew you've got fresh eyes. It's not like when Arrow changed showrunners to Beth, Beth Schwartz because Beth Schwartz was on the show from like season one, at least in some capacity. So while there has been some change in Arrow and how it's how it's run, there's still a linear progression there. And I guess you could do the same thing with Doctor Who. You could hire from within, but I don't know. This just, it seems like, why would this come out? If there wasn't at least something to it, okay. That that that's the thing that bothers me is that why create this rumor if there isn't something there? And it's just very troublesome for a show that finally found a way to kind of jolt some life into. I'm not saying that the show was on a decline or anything, but at the same time, it certainly I felt like needed something different. And I think that Jodie Whittaker has provided that, and she's brought a lot of fresh eyeballs to the doctor. To a, to a show in Doctor Who that's already pretty popular. So, ah, I don't know. I just think if this thing falls apart, it could spell bad news for Doctor Who going forward. Here's something that is coming together and came together, it seems like, rather quickly behind the scenes anyway. Adi Shankar had been teasing a new anime project. Now, there's been conflicting reports as to whether or not this is for Netflix, so I will... Let that breathe a little bit and we'll update the story if that happens to be different. But it looks like Devil May Cry will be the video game that he will be adapting for this new anime series, no matter what network it's going to be on. The reason that it seems to be Netflix is that IGN's reporting that this will somehow tie in to Castlevania. And Adi Shankar is calling this the bootleg multiverse, which I think is really cool. It's a great name. Good, good Good job for him for coming up with that one. Now, Adi Shankar acquired these rights himself to Devil May Cry because he wanted to make sure that Hollywood didn't get their hands on it and that they would do things right. That's me paraphrasing what he said. So he wanted to go all in, get the rights, kind of like what Ryan Reynolds did with Deadpool. Ryan Reynolds gets the rights to Deadpool. He wanted to make sure the character was done correctly and sort of the rest is history. And Adi Shankar has already proven that he can make the best video game adaptation that we've ever seen in Castlevania, and now he's going to take on another property. There were rumors that this, is going to, this was going to be Legend of Zelda. I don't know how those rumors started, just because it was a Japanese game property like he teased before. And it's Devil May Cry. And I think that that is a perfect fit for Adi Shankar. He's, he's just, it seems like he knows how to handle these worlds of demons and things like that, and stuff that's just really gritty. And Devil May Cry is very, very gritty. And as far as connecting it to Castlevania goes, I mean, you've got Dante, who, I mean, he wants to avenge his mother's murder by exterminating demons. That's not a far cry from how Dracula feels but with the humans and exterminating them to avenge his wife's death for killing his wife. So, I mean, there's certainly a connection there, and I don't know, I mean, there's a million different ways that you could connect these stories. And I'm not saying that there will be a camaraderie there. I'm not even sure what sort of storyline they're going to adapt for the Devil May Cry game. I mean, we're on Devil May Cry 5 is the game that's going to be coming out. Obviously, there were four before that. So this game goes back a ways. I think all the way to PlayStation 2. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. I think that that's how far back it goes. But, I mean, be that as it may, there's a lot of history here that you can adapt for Devil May Cry, and and you saw how they kind of didn't start from the very beginning with Castlevania, so there's no saying that you have to start from the very beginning with Devil May Cry either, but it just seems like this one was plucked as 
absolutely perfect for an anime adaptation. And it seems like Adi Shankar is going to be very careful with the properties that he chooses. And not everything, I think, will connect to Castlevania, though. I don't think Adi Shankar is done by a long shot, but I do think that he is not necessarily going to connect everything with Castlevania. Even though he says bootleg multiverse, I don't necessarily think... I think if the right project comes along, whether it connects or not, he would want to tackle it. Because I think that he's figured out that he's proven to us that good video game adaptations can be done on television, or even on movies for that matter. So why not just let him adapt what he wants to adapt and let him do his thing? This is one of those times where, yes... Hollywood needs to get out of the way, let this guy do what he does, and that is bring us these great anime adaptations of these video games that we love. I mean, I mean, he's already proven it two seasons with Castlevania now. Looks like we're going to get a third as well. I can't wait to see what he does with Devil May Cry. Here's something I can't wait for as well, and I have no idea how it's going to turn out, quite frankly. And that is the report from TV Line. It says that John Cryer... Yes, John Cryer from Two and a Half Men, which is probably where you know him best from, will be playing Lex Luthor on Supergirl. Yes, you heard that right. His first appearance is going to be in episode 15 of season 4. It's going to be a recurring character. Now, he was Lenny Luthor in Superman 4 years ago, so there's certainly a connection there. He's also voiced Felix Faust in Justice League action for animation, so it's, he's no stranger the DC Universe. I mean, he's a multi-Emmy Award winner, but that's for comedy. And that's the thing where I'm a little bit hesitant here. If, even if you look throughout his career, he and, and he's had a good career. He's played a lot of great characters and a lot of great things. But at the same time, there's not a whole lot there that cries Lex Luthor to me. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean that he won't do a good job. It just seems like this is very outside of his comfort zone. But maybe that's the point. Just like I was talking about with my Robin Hood review earlier. Maybe it's a chance to have fun and do something different with the character. And he's still a good actor. It's not like he can't bring edge when he needs to bring edge, right? So it's not like John Cryer is just some random person off off the street that is not familiar with the character and that's not, you know, a decorated actor. This is a guy that knows what he's doing. Maybe he's looking to do something a little bit different and the rest is history. So all we can do kind of is wait and see how John Cryer is going to do as Lex Luthor. And bringing him in in episode 15... That gives you kind of a chance to go, okay, let's see how he does. Let's see how fans react. If they love him, great. We'll keep going with that. In season five, we'll be all Lex Luthor. If it doesn't work out, what's the worst that can happen? You know, you dump him after the the last few episodes of season four and you're done. So it seems like a low-risk, high-reward thing here because, I mean, because even if Lex Luthor fails, I know that they have that rumored... Superman's TV series that may spin out of the Elseworlds crossover. That might happen now that it looks like Warner Brothers Pictures is taking a break from Man of Steel and the Superman and character on the movies. So maybe you need Lex Luthor for that. But, I mean, how many Superman villains are there? A ton. It would be weird to not have Lex Luthor, but I think that this is all going to work out. So I think it's going to be a moot point anyway. Quickly, before we move on, I this was big news, could not talk about it, and that's the announcement that Marvel is going to be publishing League of Legends comics and graphic novels. I did not see this coming. It's actually going to be written by one of the League writers, Odin Austin Schaffer, with art by Nick Vacueva, and it's going to start digitally on December the 19th, and it's going to be Ash Warmother. That's going to be the first book. It should be no surprise that they're going with Ash here. And there's going to be more graphic novels on the way in May of 20, starting in May of 2019. Now, the Ash book will be an origin story. So League fans that have been waiting to try and figure out, you know, get, get the full origin story of Ash, this is your chance to do that with Marvel Comics. And even the, you know, there were a couple of comments from Riot Games saying, you know, this is a chance for us to dig a little deeper in a way that we can't really do in the game for fans that clearly love these characters. This is our chance to not just flesh out the characters, but flesh out our world a little bit more and show these fans a little bit more about our world, get into more, a little bit more depth of storytelling. And since 
I mean, League of Legends is what a billion dollar, billions and billions of dollar property at this point. One of the biggest video games, never mind online games, biggest video games going right now. And Marvel goes ahead and grabs these rights. It seems like this is really a perfect partnership between Riot Games and Marvel, especially if Marvel is bringing in writers from League to work on this stuff. It's not like they're putting Jason Aaron on a 16th book. They've said, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. Let's let let's bring you guys in. We'll help out with artists and stuff like that. It's not like there will never be a Marvel Comics writer that writes a League of Legends book. I'm sure that will happen at some point. But for now, you want to get your feet wet? You want to tell the true adaptations of these characters and do it right? Let's bring in some of the writers from Riot Games to go ahead and handle that. And if you're League of Legends, you're going big. You're grabbing the the most profitable publisher out there right now. Nobody's selling more books, making more money than Marvel right now. I know DC's doing really well too, but Marvel's been king at least financially for a while now. So if you're League of Legends, that's where you want to start, right? That's where you want to bring your stories. And I think that, you know, it gets Marvel some more attention from video game fans that might not be reading comics, you know, and this maybe spins them off into into people sampling a little bit more of their product. It's a win-win situation for both sides, I think, especially as long as the stories are good. I mean, if the stories bomb, you know, you put out a couple of them and then you let it go, right? Another, I think, low-risk, high-reward type of situation here. So I can't wait to see what Marvel does with Ash, War Mother, and whatever else they decide to do. That's the only one we know for sh- for sure about. So we'll have to see going forward who the next one will be or what the next setting will be. It's going to do for Nerd News. Up next, going to talk to Vita Ayala about writing Livewire's first ongoing series for Valiant Comics. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Kent, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You cannot imagine our excitement when we found out that Livewire was going to be getting her brand new solo series, her first ever from Valiant, and how excited were we that we find out that Vita Ayala was going to be writing it. Vita, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Doing really, really well. As a matter of fact, when you first signed on to write this series, were you actually surprised that this was the first solo series for Livewire ever? I I have to admit that it is a cheat, but no, because I, I worked in comics retail for about 10 years, so I, I kind of knew what was going on. So it was uh, it was much more like, oh, really? Oh, we're doing this. Let's do it. <laughs> That's uh, all. That's awesome. And I mean, I mean, even though she's never had a solo series, she's always kind of been a really important figure in a lot of stories from Valiant over the years. I mean, since like 93, I believe. So what aspects of her character were you looking to explore the most? Uh, to me, one of the most important aspects of her character is that everything that she does is from this place of wanting to protect her people, especially the the secret weapons kids who she considers family. Uh, secret weapons was probably one of my top favorite comics that came out in the last five years or so. Uh, and so to be able to kind of take that baton and run with it and really push it in a series that gets in her head, literally we hear her internal monologue for parts of it was really interesting to me. I love that kind of like almost like family drama, but heightened with superpowers kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that kind of led me into my next question because we've seen the previews for the book that have, that's already been released that the kids are going to be a part. Uh, it seems like they're going to be a part of this this arc anyway. So how much of that is going to be a part of this first arc? And which one of the which one of the young Syods are you kind of liking working with the most at this point? They're definitely going to be uh, in involved in this, and even beyond being physically there, which we've seen in the previews. Uh, they are her motivation. They are this driving force, and they almost act like both a mirror and a conscience in a way. Uh, I think that she's a very fully formed character, and so there's a lot of nuance there. But you you can only look outward through your eyes, and so having them there really kind of forces her to look at herself, which I think is really fun. Um, Who's my favorite to work with? I don't know, man. I love them all. Uh, they're so different from each other, but their dynamic is so smooth that it's really hard to choose. I guess maybe Nikki right mm-hmm. now. I love the birds a lot, yeah. and I love 
I love that they have their own personalities and that she kind of corrals them. I think that's hilarious. And she's like, on the one hand, very kind of tough and she's lived, you know, by herself and she was living on the streets, but also she's got this like very like innocent, compassionate quality to her that is almost at odds with that. So I, I find that a lot of fun. Before we dive into the story a little bit more, I wanted to make sure to ask you about the amazing art team that you're working with on LiveWire. Now, how's it been working with Raul Allen and Patricia Martin on a book? And do you have a favorite cover that you've seen so far, variant or otherwise? I It is incredible working with them. They are so, so, so talented and skilled, but also so open and very interested in kind of the collaborative process. And it's it's just amazing. Uh yeah, every time I get new pages, I'm blown away. I got some previews of, I think it was number two recently. Uh, and I just like, it, I tried not to cry because they're so good at what they do. And they clearly love Amanda so much. Um, I don't know. Choosing a favorite cover is rough because there are like nine of them so far. So, <laughs> hmm. I think probably, you know, it, again, this is going to be a cheat, but I'm I'm doing a, a book uh, with one of the people that did a variant, um, Harvey, who did the variant that became the Sandy. And that image is so striking to me. She mm. looks so powerful. She has all these like muscles, but in a way that makes sense for what she does. And like, it's very kind of almost cyberpunky ghosts in the shell. Cause she's got all the technology and pieces behind her. And I just, I saw that and I got chills. <laughs> so you good. got this, you got this cool glass variant thing too. Yeah. With, I think Doug Braithwaite's doing that one. Oh, I'm so excited for that. I've heard that they're going to they're going to take what they did with the Bloodshot one and then just like up it, uh, which Ooh. is bonkers because that Bloodshot one is amazing. It really is. That That's so cool. Now, I know you've been a fan of Livewire for a while now. So with representation being so important, how important is it to have a hero like Amanda right now? I think it's incredibly important. Uh, I think to a certain extent, when I'm writing, I and writing for younger versions of myself. I try and write, especially with my creator and stuff, but even with my work for hire, I try and do things that a younger version of me needed to see. Um, and seeing a character like Amanda, who is incredibly intelligent, very strong physically and, and of will, uh, but also incredibly compassionate and empathetic and loving, is incredibly important. That is an image of a black woman that we need to see as someone very nuanced who does make mistakes, but they're coming from this place of wanting to do good and feeling like backed into a corner almost. Um, I think that's important for people like me, but I think it's also important for people that are very different from me. That role is generally not given to black women. And I think we need to see black women doing those things to just continue to push the fact that like, you know, black women are people. <laughs> we have all kinds of really interesting intricacies and, and you know, we need to be acknowledged in that way. Talking to Vita Ayala, who, of course, is writing Livewire number one for Valiant. Of course, it's going to be in your local shops and digital retailers on December the 19th. Final order cutoff, by the way, on November the 26th. Now, Vita, her relationship with Toyo Harada over the years has been really complicated one, to say the least. Now, do you feel like that is something that she still needs to deal with? Or would you say that she's kind of very much moved on past that point? I don't know if she ever could completely. I think that they, you know, Valiant has done a very good job in showing how on the face of it, they have very similar kind of ideologies and her ideology really does come from being raised by Toyo Harada. But the, where they kind of diverge is what they're willing to do to get there. And so she's constantly battling with like, well, how far do I have to push it? When do I become him? I don't want to do that, but I do want to protect my people. And that's, it's like, I mean, he was essentially her father, right? How do you get over someone who raised you? You, you really don't. You're constantly having to go back and go, all right, is this really me? Or is this something that I just believed because it was told to me? Um, yeah, that her her issues go deep with him, uh, especially because, like I said, I think some of their end goals are the same. Yeah, definitely. And and I mean, that's uh, that's kind of the one thing I love that Valiant does is that he's always kind of in the background. He's always kind of in the the you know, the the back part of the minds of those that he was around. And yet he you don't see him often, but he's always there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. His hands have touched everything in the Valiant universe and have, you know, 
flicked that first domino for so many of the things that are going on. Uh, and even even after his his apparent death, like yeah. That yeah, guy we'll, is we'll find out about that apparently a little bit later on if you're looking at the Valiant solicits that are going to be coming up a little bit later on. <laughs> Excited for that one too, by the way. Um, yeah. Now, speaking of Valiant, I mean, fans of fans of the books know that Livewire has been seen as a terrorist by many because of a really tough decision that she had to make. So how do you feel like she's been able to push past that and still maintain her desire to help others and kind of stay true to herself? Uh, I think, uh, without giving too much away, that's kind of what this first story arc in Livewire is about. So it is about her having to move beyond being just offensive automatically and, and dealing with the fact that her actions did cause pain and fear. And what that means for her as a person who does want to do good and does just want to help people. She has no desire to hurt people, but she will, obviously, when push comes to shove. And so how do you reconcile that in your own mind? Well, that's that's what we're exploring in the first arc. But it's, you know, it's Valiant. So there's going to be a lot of action and there's going to be a lot of really cool like effects and stuff. Oh, no doubt about it. When you're talking about Livewire, you've got to have those cool effects. Is there like is there like an aspect? She's got so many powers, too. I don't think people yeah. realize that she's got such a great power set. So do, do you have something that you're like, oh, I can't wait to dive into this. I want to do this my way kind of thing. There, there is something uh, that uh, the art team and I kind of came up with, which I think is really cool, and it's very subtle and very small. Um, so she's, if you know, if your listeners don't know, she's a technomancer. She can manipulate technology with her mind, um, and we wanted to visually represent that. Uh, we thought that would be really cool because that is so much a part of her perspective and her life. And this book is literally from her perspective. So we, there's some really cool effects with that, but also like we've seen Livewire do some pretty intricate stuff, but we've also seen her be kind of like this bludgeoning tool and just getting more into how small, subtle things can really affect things is going to be really cool. Uh, There's something in the first arc that pushes that, and then in the second arc, there's something just small but really cool that, that we also do that I'm, I'm super excited for people to see. Love that. Love that. Now, you've been very fortunate to write some books for DC. I think you've done a few things for Marvel as well. Do you think Livewire really stacks up when compared to some of the big names like Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman? I mean, even the Dark Knight himself, for that matter. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. You know, when I was really, really reading comics and, and kind of coming up, uh, live art wasn't as big of a figure, but I can imagine like having her posters on my wall right alongside Wonder Woman. Absolutely. She, like I said, uh, you know, she's incredibly intelligent, which I always find fascinating because she, she has all this physical power, but she chooses to use her intellect and chooses to try to minimize damage, which I find really interesting considering she was raised essentially as a, as a person to kill. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. But she's 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 so cool. Like, I, I'm not just saying that because I'm writing her. I, when I was asked to pitch on her, I was super excited because I've since the reboot, I've gotten to know her and she's so awesome. So, yeah, absolutely. I in a in a in a street fight, I'd probably put my money on Livewire most of the time, but also just in terms of her like being an icon. Absolutely. I'm just thinking a duel between her and Cyborg would be so epic, <laughs> you know? I don't know if that's yeah, ever a realistic thing, but but she's got more powers than he does, though. That's the thing. She can control his body. I think what would ultimately happen was that she wouldn't fight him because he's exactly the kind of person that she'd want to mentor yep. and want to work with. So, yep. like, that also is an interesting thing. I always love when, you know, you go into something and you think it's going to be this big conflict and the conflict is internal and it ends up being that they work together to surmount this other bigger thing. I think that she's that kind of person, um, very much like Wonder Woman to me. Definitely. I, I mean, they could have used her during the whole Dark Knight's Metal thing. I'm just saying. I think <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think if Scott Snyder, I know you listen to the show, so if if you're listening, that's something you could maybe could have thought about. <laughs> uh, anytime now, there's some big tech, like it, whenever like Dark Side rolls through, I'm like. She would handle. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Omega beams. What Omega beams? Come on. <laughs> All right. Now, when, when I first met you in Washington, D.C. back in January, you'd recently done a big writer's workshop, and it seems like you'd done so much since then. So what's this year kind of been like for you, and where does writing Livewire kind of rank in all the great things that have happened for you this year? Uh, it's been a really, really hectic but wonderful year for me. Uh, I 
have been given the opportunity to do a lot more work for higher stuff, which is awesome. Getting to play with other people's, you know, characters and their worlds. I'm, I'm super into that. Um, and I've also released two different creator owned books, which has been incredible. This is the first year that I was able to do freelance full time up until December of last year. Uh, you know, I've always had a job. I've worked for most of my life now. Uh, and so I was able to actually make the transition to writing full time, mostly because of my wife, because she has good health insurance. But it allowed there you me go. to be able yeah, to. Me too. You know, <laughs> it's, it's real. It's real. You know, yeah, having even, you know, just the health insurance alone is like super helpful. But even just it's vitally important, especially as a creator. And you oh, understand yeah. this because you create to have support physical and moral support. <laughs> I'm so in the same boat as that right now, especially with the whole health insurance thing. So in the same boat. Makes a huge difference. And I have some chronic problems, so that definitely, it's really good health insurance. But yeah, I, I, I got married at uh, Halloween of last year. And so coming forward, I've had a lot of support and, and been able to pitch more and to, uh, like I said, to be able to work on more work for hire stuff, which is awesome. And Livewire is an absolute highlight for me. Uh, like I said, I'm a huge fan of the character. And when they told me that I would be able to work with, you know, Raul and Patricia, I, I cried. I legitimately cried because I love Secret Weapons so much. Uh, so it is definitely like bucket list kind of stuff. Absolutely. Now let's go back to the blackout for just a second that happened. All, all that stuff that's happened with Livewire recently. I can't help but wonder if there may be some repercussions from that that we haven't quite haven't quite come to the surface yet for her. So do you think that that if do you think that's the case? And could that be something that we see at some point in this book? I mean, I think that's definitely the case. And that's a that's because it's not real. I can say that it's a fun problem. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but there, there is so much that we, even as readers, let alone as people, you know, creating the book, haven't even contemplated being consequences of something like that. A countrywide cataclysm, a countrywide losing of power, and that included like people's cars. Like it wasn't just like yeah, exactly. Right. Light. Like she shut off the country. Everything everything flashlight like you know what i mean like it was bonkers and that leaves a lot of real interesting room to bring in new stuff that again some of it i've thought of but some of it i haven't thought of yet and i'm so excited to be able to explore that kind of stuff for sure think about it have you been in a public place where the wi-fi suddenly goes out and (laughs) see the the panic and the anger that comes from that I'm a New Yorker, so I've been oh, uh, to two citywide blackouts so far. One because of Sandy, which was yep. absolutely devastating, and then in 2003, I remember that blackout as well. And like that was both of those were a lot, and that was just one city. <laughs> like, yeah, that's that's just crazy to even think about. I I can't even imagine it. Yeah, well, my mom my mom lives in a, a very very tall building. She's on the 11th floor of a 20 floor. Uh, 24 one floor building and so like she didn't have running water or electricity so we had to like get water in jugs and walk them up the stairs every day to have water and stuff and like just like little stuff like that I think I do have an advantage having like been through that of like oh and this would be a thing and this would be a thing so there's a lot of rich stuff to mine from for sure and now you know why when you read this book it's gonna be super authentic oh yeah just saying (laughs) Yeah, it was crazy. Sandy was absolutely bonkers. I, I was walking around just because Uptown had some power. And so I walked Uptown and then came back downtown and there was people like military vehicles and all kinds of accidents. I was like, holy smokes. Like, <laughs> Jesus. So, yeah, I got the skinny on it. I think that's a good way to put it right there. And we are super excited about the fact that we get to see Livewire number one finally hit comic book shelves and digital retailers on December the 19th. It's been a long time coming. Make sure you get those orders in. Final order cutoff for that is November the 26th. It's Vita Ayala. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you for having me. Uh, this was a blast. You know, Livewire is a character that I couldn't believe didn't have her own ongoing series already. I looked it up several times to be sure, and it was just mind-blowing to me that it hadn't happened yet. So, I mean, when I finally saw that it was happening and that Vita Ayala was involved, so good to get a chance to talk to Vita about Livewire and how much Vita was a fan of the character and how much of a big deal this character can be right now. To me, 
and I think Vita agreed that this character is one that should be up there with the big names in not just female heroes, but heroes in general as well. So if you're not familiar with Livewire, and you know while this book isn't necessarily and like an origin story or anything like that, and is only just the first ongoing series, pick up this book because it's you'll find out just how amazing of a character that Livewire really is, and just how amazing of a writer Vita Ayala is as well. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Vita Ayala and Valiant Comics for letting me talk about Livewire number one this week. Hopefully you're already pre-ordering. It comes out next month at your local comic book shops and digital retailers. You can also find more information on our website. Go to downandnerdypodcast.com and keep checking back on social media as well. Facebook.com slash downandnerdy at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly, be good to your fellow nerds, and hey, happy Thanksgiving. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shamblers still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.